We continue in 1 Timothy. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just remind you that Timothy is a letter written from Paul to a pastor in a church in Ephesus. He's reminding Timothy, who he regards as a son of all of his duties as a pastor, must guard his own life, he must guard his own doctrine, guard the truth of the gospel. He says this is important because you should know how to behave in the household of God. This is 1 Timothy 3. This is a household of God, a family. We learn in 1 Timothy 5, we're to regard older women as mothers, older men as fathers, and sons, and daughters, and brothers, and sisters. The church is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So here Paul explains how he begins to talk about in this letter exactly how each different group of people in the church should be treated. Last week we talked about the special honor that should be given to the elderly, especially to widows, those disadvantaged in the body of Christ. It says that widows are to be honored. This week we learn that elders are also to be honored. Uh, he says with double honor. Why is that? In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, we know that elders are keeping watch over your souls as those who must give account. Because of the heavy burden placed upon elders, I think that should be the context for what we'll read this morning. They should be given honor, but also should be corrected when they stray from truth. So would you please stand as we read 1 Timothy five seventeen through 25. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray in Jesus' name that you would impress your word upon our hearts by the power of your spirit, that we would be changed, that you would correct our thinking. Indeed, that we would know how to love and honor you more and more accurately and well. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to love you more. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 23, David calls God his shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh in the Hebrew. Yahweh is my shepherd. 
W. Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He is a pastor now, but he was a shepherd. He was actually a shepherd taking care of sheep. And he looked at all of Psalm 23. It's a wonderful book. It's a small little book. I recommend it to you. But we see in Psalm 23 a picture, although an imperfect picture, but a picture of what God does. He does much, much more than what's in Psalm 23. But God, when He cares for us, when He cares for His sheep, He does so as a shepherd, a good shepherd. I also want to uh, read to you 1 Timothy chapter 5. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter 5, we see that the elders in your church are also called shepherds. So God, our Father, is our shepherd, but we also have other shepherds, under-shepherds, if you will. I'll read 1 Peter 5, 1-5. through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in this particular text, we see also that elders are shepherds, but they're shepherds that have a great shepherd over them. The good shepherd, Christ. The title of the sermon is God's Under Shepherds. It's the first part of two Uh, sermons on this particular text. Today we'll talk about provision for elders and protection of elders. Next week we'll talk about correction of elders and selection of elders. Provision, protection, correction, and selection, it's all found here in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. First, provision for elders. Timothy is instructed in verse 17 that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now remember in the previous verses, Paul had just talked to Timothy about honoring widows. So there is a sense, and of course that meant taking care of them, taking care of their material needs. Well, now he shifts to the care of elders. And he doesn't mean old men, although the word presbytero could mean old men, or it can mean the the office of elder. Obviously, the context here is the office of the elder. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that Paul uses the words for bishop or overseer in the same way, as well as pastor or shepherd. This is the office. He's saying the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. We've talked a little bit about elders already in 1 Timothy 3, of course, we got to hear the qualifications for elders. In verse 1, he says, If anyone desires the office of overseer, elder, he desires a noble task, and that they were to appoint elders in every town, Titus 1.5. 
So every church has elders. Every church should have elders who shepherd the flock. These are men called by God to rule the church and to shepherd, as we read in 1 Peter 5. It seems that there are two principles that Paul pulls out of this first verse of the text today. First, that elders who rule well should be worthy of double honor. But what does that mean exactly? I want you to notice that, first of all, they have to rule well. They're elders, and they're elders who rule well. Uh, And they should be doubly honored. So, of course, this isn't a text that I I long to preach on. I can only imagine what's going through your mind right now. Richard is certainly desiring to be honored, and doubly so. I'm just trying to be faithful to the text. I'm not looking for any particular or special treatment from you. Some pastors do insist on being called pastor or reverend. Or I mean, this is just one example of how pastors have sought to be honored. And I don't think everyone who, who insists on those kinds of things are actually on a power trip. Some actually don't want to lead the flock into sin. Uh, they don't want to become too familiar because familiarity often does breed contempt. Um, as you probably know, I don't insist that you call me anything. Um, it's up to you. I don't mind being called pastor or reverend or Richard. I leave it in the person's heart to kind of honor the elders that are appointed over you by God to obey that part of Scripture the best you can in your own way. But it is Scripture. That's why I'm talking about it. We come to it. I'm not going to skip it. And my feelings actually are unimportant on the matter. What's important is that you hear the truth of Scripture. So, in your own heart, you need to make sure that you honor the elders that God's appointed over you. And right now, that's me and it's Jerry. And I know that Jerry has ruled well and continues to rule well. And I personally do everything I can to honor him in private and in public. You should as well. Each of us should do the same. And if you ever go to another church and there are elders, maybe not as worthy of honor as Jerry, you should still honor them. Do everything in your power to honor them. Because it's in the scripture and it honors God to do so. But not only are those who rule well worthy of double honor in the church... It says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Why is that? Because those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard of judgment. They're held accountable by God. So I will, as a side note, just point out that there are two types of elders. We see in this scripture uh, very clearly that God shows us that there are elders who rule and there are elders who teach or preach. Um, Ruling elders, we call the first category. Those who are, whose lives are not devoted exclusively to ministry. Jerry has another job. He's not a full-time uh, elder in the sense that he doesn't do anything else. Whereas I have no other duties. My whole job is study the scriptures, pray for you, preach, teach. I labor full-time in that calling. Our denomination calls that kind of elder a teaching elder. So I'm a teaching elder. Jerry is a ruling elder. Teaching elders are also called pastors. But both are elders. And you should also know that we see them as equal with regard to shepherding and the shepherding decisions of the church. I don't have a greater 
influence over decisions that are made than Jerry does or vice versa. That's called a plurality of elders. We decide matters of the church without any priority. But duties, the duties they have are slightly different as they shepherd. Of course, as you know, I preach and I teach and I pray and I visit and minister and Jerry does many of those things as well, but not full time. So why the double honor? Because it's a very weighty call. It's something that the more you know the holiness of God, the more you shrink from the duties and the calling, the more terrified you become of the service. James 3 says, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And one of the requirements for an elder is that they teach. Specifically, you should, you should insist that your pastor, your full-time pastor, is a man who spends his days in prayer and in study and in personal ministry, visiting and shepherding the flock. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching is what the ESV says. Literally, the Greek is who labors in the word and in teaching or the word and doctrine Note, too, that this is a, a labor. It's, it's work. It's hard work laboring in the Word of God and communicating those doctrines to others. Shepherding and spending your day in prayer and study should be labor. I grew up in many churches where it wasn't labor. And even in Old England, uh, much of our heritage is that pastors kind of did their thing a few hours on Saturday and then preached on Sunday and the rest of the week was theirs for pleasure. Or that studying the Word of God was unimportant. I, I again, grew up where often the, the pastor didn't think he had to study too much because he had the Holy Spirit, don't you know? So he would just pray a little bit and then come to the pulpit and see what happened. And I can actually show you some examples of that later if you're interested. People who still live that way. And I think it's terrifying. This text shows the folly of that approach. The pastor is a man of study. He's a man who labors in the Word. He studies the Word. He labors in doctrine. And he prays for the flock. And he does this as much of the day as possible. Rarely do I walk up here and I feel like I've exhausted the topic. Actually, never. I always feel like there's so much more I could have studied. There's so much more I could have written. There's so much more I could have said. I do strive to rise early. I want you to hold me accountable to that. I strive to diligently study and pray and to study and pray as long as possible. It is my great privilege to do it. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I know God has brought me here to serve you. And I know many of you would love to have this opportunity to study the Word of God all day. I mean, you can only imagine what a pleasure it is for me to do that. Some of you would love to do that as well. I think most Christians would love to study the Word of God, to know more of God. But I mostly want to be faithful because I love God, because I love you, and because I know that I will have to give an account. It's a fearful thing and it spurs me on. And it spurs me to lead on Jesus Christ. 
who's my good shepherd. So as I've said, I'm not looking for any special accolades or treatment, uh, but I just don't want to ignore God's word at all. Um, It reminded me of, and probably this was probably my only Father's Day reference, so listen up for you fathers. Uh, It reminds me of how you instruct your family on maybe the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. I remember telling my kids, the primary reason you honor mom and dad isn't because I need to rule the house. Or is it because I need to just have discipline in the house? Or because I don't want you to treat your mom poorly? The primary reason I want you to honor your father and mother is because God says so. I don't want you to break the commandment. I don't want you to to sin against God. I think this is helpful when you look at this particular um, command of Scripture that kind of strikes us, especially Americans, the wrong way. I mean, many of you probably look at your elders and your pastor as someone who just gives you some helpful hints and some advice every now and then. But honor? Obey? No. No, not, no. No, 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 no. That's an old, old thing. We don't do that anymore. So consider how you honor your elders. It's not primarily an outward thing either. I think it's right here. Everything else happens here, and then it flows out of the attitude of your heart. So don't allow your hearts to sin against God. God's appointed right now two elders over you who are striving to shepherd your souls. Don't despise these men that God has set over you or show, show them any kind of ill will. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Show them honor and their labors on your behalf. But secondly, we see in verse 18, as you honor those who are elders over you, that faithful churches are called to honor their pastors with pay. They don't work for free. Verse 18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So one way that teaching elders or pastors, full-time ministers are shown honor is that you provide for their needs. You take care of their needs so that they're not hungry. And Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, word for word. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then he quotes the words of Christ in Matthew 10.10. The laborer deserves his wages. That's interesting. Paul, when he wrote this, didn't have the book of Matthew in front of him. But it also shows you some amazing things about how they viewed Scripture. The words of Jesus already were viewed as inspired. Maybe Matthew was written at this time. We don't know exactly. But they considered Matthew to be Scripture. For the Scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. Praise God. Okay, so again, I'm not not asking you for more money. Not wanting any more money from you. Just want to teach the Scripture. The church has provided very well for me here, and I do, with great freedom, devote all of my energies to ministry of the Word. My kids aren't hungry. I'm wearing new pants today, like we get new clothes occasionally. So, I'm well cared for by God's grace. But the doctrine is that the churches who have a means to pay pastors well and don't, and some cannot pay their pastor well, I understand that, But those who have a means to pay the pastor well and don't do that, I'm convinced that church is not going to prosper. I've heard people say things like, well, we want to keep our pastor like Jesus, poor and humble. 
I've actually heard that. That's not right. The principle is this. If a man rules well and devotes his life to ministry and to the word, he should be compensated well. Show him double honor. So don't be penny-pinching or selfish. I mean, this church is not, but who knows where you might be in the future. Honor your pastor with his salary if he serves well and honors the Lord especially. Calvin wrote, Support should be provided chiefly for pastors who are employed in teaching, such as the ingratitude of the world, that very little care is taken about supporting the ministers of the word. And Satan, by this trick, endeavors to deprive the church of instruction by terrifying many through the dread of poverty and hunger. I won't say that seminarians are terrified of becoming pastors, but there's certainly some dread of coming to small churches where they may not be paid well because they've got new families, many of them, etc., etc. So the principle is pay your pastor for his work. Don't despise his work. Don't despise his salary. That's also sinful. But it's a testimony to our church that we value Scripture and full-time pastoral ministry, and that I am paid, and praise God. It's a testimony to the world. There's also a very special and I think very helpful instruction on how we are to look at the Old Testament law right here, and it's really exciting. The general equity of the civil law. So there are many who, of course, feel that the Old Testament is just old stuff. It's not for us. Just forget about it. It's not that important. We want the new wine. We want the new covenant. It's a misunderstanding of the history of redemption and of God's word to think like that. God's word is for God's people of all ages. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith in God, our Redeemer. From all time, from Adam to the end, it's the same. And God's law is always upon his people for their good. So when we look at the law of Moses, when you read Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you see three kinds of law. First, you see the moral law. This is the Ten Commandments and the related laws. The Ten Commandments, they're still binding on us. It's still wrong for us not to honor God as the only God. It's still wrong for us to murder It's still wrong for us to bear false witness or to lie. It's still wrong to dishonor your father and your mother. We still must honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The moral law still binds us in a good way. It shows us what is pleasing to God. We know what pleases God in his heart. So the moral law is not gone. The moral law is still 100% upon us. It either convicts us. It condemns us if we're outside of Christ or in Christ. It shows us how to honor God better and to love him better. Besides the moral law, we see the ceremonial law. It's the second kind of law we see. It's related to the worship of God in Israel, in the state of Israel. The theocracy of Israel, the temple, the tabernacles, the sacrifices, the purity laws. This is all the ceremonial law. And it was all abrogated with Christ. It all pointed straight to Christ. It all shows us Christ. And then when Christ came, it stopped. There's no more sacrifices. We don't have an altar out here where I sacrifice bulls for your sins. That's gone. 
But we do see Christ in the Passover. We see Christ in the Old Testament sacrifices and the celebrations, the feast days, the food laws that preserve purity and worship. We see Christ in all of it. And we marvel at the beauty of the ceremonial law as it feeds our souls and pushes our hearts to the Savior. Ceremonial law is, is wonderful. And when you see it, I'm, I'm describing these because when you read those parts of the Bible, you should be able to kind of quickly delineate which part of the law that is. And you know how it should be pushing your heart to Christ. Thirdly and finally, and this is the part of the law that, Mu- or that Paul references here, the civil law. These are all the laws that seem very much part of the state of Israel. The governance of the state of Israel, the cities of refuge, how to conduct trials, how to care for widows, how to manage property, how to care for animals, the punishment of crimes. That's all over as well. We don't have cities of refuge anymore. If you accidentally murder someone, you can't flee to another city to escape the punishment. We don't provide Levites for special, with special city, cities or rights, but... What the civil law does for us is that all of the principles of the civil law, they're applied as best we can to our lives. It's valuable and it's applicable to our lives right now. It's God's law for God's people. And although it's abrogated, it's still for us. It still encourages us in various ways. So we take the principles of the Old Testament civil law and we try to apply them in our lives. And you may or may not know this, but much of our legal system is based on Old Testament civil law. Much of it. Innocent until proven guilty. That's straight from Scripture. And so much more. So it is fascinating when you see Paul take a line of the civil law about an ox treading the grain, and he applies it to a pastor, to an elder. You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. What is he doing? What does this have to do with elders or the church? He's taking the principle from the thing and he's applying the principle to the church. That's what we do with the civil law. It requires wisdom. Of course, it requires prayer. So, of course, the point of Paul's referencing this is that While an ox is treading, you don't put a muzzle on him so he can't eat what he's walking on. He needs to be able to eat as much corn as he wants while he's walking around, treading out this grain. By the same token, if a pastor is laboring full-time and preaching, he should be able to be supported in this work. Okay, so that's honoring elders compensating elders. But he also talks about the protection of elders. The protection of elders. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Not saying don't ever bring a charge up against an elder. Elders do bad things. But no charge should be admitted without two or three witnesses. We read that in Deuteronomy 17. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one should be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The principle is the same in the church, isn't it? 
This applies to everyone in the church. None of you can be brought up on charges. We haven't seen any charges in many years here, I don't think. None of you can be brought up on charges, though, just because someone says something about you or says that they saw you do something or whatever. Everything has to be upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's for everyone. But Paul is ensuring that it's always applied to elders. Always. The principle is reiterated by Christ in Matthew chapter 18. Actually, would you turn with me to Matthew 18? This is a fundamental text whenever it comes to how you deal with other people in the church who have offended you or who have sinned in some way. Beginning in verse 15, this is Jesus talking. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step number one. If someone sins against you or you know someone's sinning, you go to that person. You go straight to them. Don't go around them. Don't talk about them behind their backs. Go to them. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, Jesus is pulling from Deuteronomy 17. He's saying this principle does apply. If this person is in sin uh, and they don't listen to you, take two others. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. That's step three. They don't listen to you. They don't listen to two of you. Take it to the church. Take it to the session. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, to the elders of the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, whatever discipline the elders of the church apply, God sees that as real. That's real discipline. That's not just a hand wave. God looks at the actions of the elders acting on his behalf as truly disciplined. Again, I say to you, if any two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, again, the context is discipline, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Paul is reiterating the principles of discipline as regards to the discipline of a particular elder or the charges being brought up against an elder. And he's saying you need to take two people with you or else we're not even going to admit the charge. This is for the elder's protection. Those who are shepherds need extra protection. Why? Because they're targets of attack, obviously, from Satan, from the church itself, from people in the church. So don't even listen to charges. Don't even admit a charge against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. And the accused, this is part of our polity as well, the accused, if you accuse me of a crime, I get to look you in the eyes. I get to look my accusers in the eyes. And the same is for each of you. Again, this is part of our legal code in the United States as well, isn't it? You get to face your accusers. And this doesn't imply guilt. It's simply the process to admit a charge against an elder. And if it persists, the elder should be brought before the church court. 
For the church members, this is the session. For the pastor, this is the presbytery. And then there's always redress to a higher court. Such is the protection offered to elders from accusation. You might think, well, this is so unnecessary. Maybe it is in many churches, but sometimes it's not. Calvin wrote, This is necessary. It's a necessary remedy against the malice of men. For none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. You can hear Calvin's own experience in this as well. He was a pastor for many years, for decades. Not only does it rise from the difficulty of their office, that sometimes they either sink under it or stagger or halt or blunder, in consequence of which wicked men may seize occasion for finding fault with them. But there is this additional vexation that although they perform their duty correctly so as not to commit an error, they never escape a thousand censures. And this is the craftiness of Satan, to draw away the hearts of men from their ministers, that the instruction, that their instruction may gradually fall into contempt. So when someone begins gossiping gossiping or accusing one of your elders of something, just refuse to listen. Say, go talk to Richard. Go talk to Jerry. If this is a thing, go talk to them. Or bring them to us. Because often this is just the way Satan works. He wants the instruction of the word to fall into contempt. Obviously, if you think I'm contemptible, What I say is contemptible, right? This is Satan's strategy. So in general, the elders should receive the benefit of the doubt. Unless you go through Matthew 18, the Matthew 18 formula, and you find that person guilty. They're innocent. They're innocent until proven guilty. Give them a break. However, sometimes the charge is valid. Sometimes an elder must be corrected or removed. That's next week. Come next week. We'll talk about that because Paul does as well. So we've discussed the provision and protection of elders. I want to close by looking at John chapter 10, where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, the good pastor. John chapter 10. He is my over-shepherd. He's Jerry's over-shepherd. We're just his under-shepherds. But we learn what an elder should look like by looking at Jesus. Verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was the hired hand and not a shepherd. He does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock. One shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this charge I've received from my Father. Verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Of course, none of my labors and none of Jerry's labors are anything compared to the labors of Christ, our good shepherd. Pursue the good shepherd today. If you don't know the shepherd, if you know that you are not among his sheep, pour your heart out to the Lord today. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you've given us a good shepherd. As elders, we're grateful that we have a shepherd who is perfect, that we can look to as an example of how we should act. As members of your flock, we are grateful that we have a good shepherd who cares for us even when our elders fail us on this planet. Lord, please impress your word upon our hearts. Forgive our sins. Draw us to you. Care for us as a shepherd. Gently lead those who have young. Hold us close to your bosom who are hurting. Lead us and guide us beside still waters and restore our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.